You are listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church. We are a community in Madison, Wisconsin, who gathers to worship, to learn, to serve, and to grow together in God's love. Please visit us online at www.covenantmadison.org, where you can find information about Covenant Ministries, as well as links to our online worship services and sermon podcasts. Thank you, Cindy. Thanks, kids. Glad you could be here. So happy September. It's a new program year. It's a new school year. It's a great time for a fresh start, for a new beginning. So we're going to look at Genesis, the first book of the Bible. The word Genesis means beginning, and today we start this four-week sermon series on Genesis. And in a couple weeks, on uh, three weeks, on September 25th, we're going to have at 10 o'clock an uh, in-depth Bible study of Genesis led by Melissa Hardy and John Strickwerda. Now, Genesis is a big book. It's one of the biggest in the Bible, depending on how you count in terms of words or pages or um, chapters, but it's definitely a very big book, and there's a lot in it. The first words of Genesis might be familiar to you. The, wor- the, the, the book starts with, in the beginning. So here we are, September, New Year, New program year, new school year, in the beginning, fresh start, here we go. Walter Brueggemann is one of the best-known Bible scholars in the world, and he wrote a commentary on Genesis in which he framed it into four sections, um, focused on the idea of call. The first part's the sovereign call of God. The second part, the embraced call. The third part is the conflicted call. And the final part of Genesis, the hidden call of God. It's a fascinating way of setting up the book. And over the next month or so, I want to invite you to dig into this book of Genesis a little bit. Maybe you've read some of it over the years. Maybe you haven't. There's a lot to look there. There's a lot to read and learn and grow. We talk about learning a lot here at the church. We talk a lot about growing. You know, we've got a visual example on the wall here. This is our growing season. The seeds plant, the seeds bloom and blossom, and then there's harvest time. The hope is that we would continue growing as well. So why not make a commitment? This month, new year, new program year, spend five or ten minutes a day reading, pondering the book of Genesis. You know, we have time for football and Facebook and TikTok and TV and everything else. We can find five or ten minutes to read the Bible a little bit, read about the Bible. I included some links in the weekly email with some background information about Genesis that might be helpful. You know, we send the kids to school this time of year with high hopes that they're going to learn a lot and grow. We can learn a lot. We can grow too. So crack open your Bible, open things up, see what you can learn, how you can learn and grow this month. I really like this outline by Walter Brueggemann But there's something that seems a little odd to me about it. Did you notice? It's all about the men. Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. Where where are the women? Now, I'm not cracking on biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann. He captures the essence of what is actually in the text. The text itself, the biblical text, is very male-centered and very focused on Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. It's just the way the book is 
written, very male-centered. So it's part of the reason why we're doing this series this month. As we jump into this series, I'm wondering if anybody has ever heard of the Bechdel test. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. B-E-C-H-D-E-L. Well, the Bechdel test was developed many years ago to look at movies, and we can look at other forms of communication as well, to assess the role of women. So the way that the test works, you have to, to pass the test, you have to satisfy three criteria. You have to have at least two women with names. You have to have those two women talk to each other. And the conversation has to be about something other than a man. Okay? Now, I put Princess Leia up there because the article I read about this um, noted that as wonderful as the Star Wars series is, the original Star Wars movies didn't pass the test. In fact, one person quoted in the article said, this is the 1970s. We're just lucky Princess Leia can shoot a rifle. <laughs> Fortunately, for those who are Star Wars fans, um, the subsequent movies have gotten a little better with the Bechdel test. Sadly, the Bible doesn't do very well with this test. There are 66 books in our scripture. And according to Nadia Bowles-Weber, biblical scholar and pastor, she says six books of the Bible pass the test. Exodus, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Mark, and Luke. And that's it. Six out of 66 pass the test. So maybe we have some work to do to creatively reconstruct, reimagine, and think about women in the biblical narratives. As Brueggemann's outline suggested, much of the biblical narrative revolves around the men. And you can see the men that he mentions here in this family tree for Genesis, for Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then one of the 12 sons of Jacob is Joseph down there at the bottom of the screen. Those are sort of the, the patriarchs that we might be familiar with. This is a generalized family tree. The, the actual tree is a lot more complicated, a lot more people on it. This is the simple version of the tree. And that's how it shapes out. Um, so rather than doing a series on Genesis as a whole, we thought it would be good to do a series on the women in Genesis to lift up their stories, and in some cases to wonder about their stories, since so much is, so little is, is written, and sometimes nothing at all is heard from the women. And we're only able to scratch the surface in a four-week series. We're not even going to talk about probably the best-known woman in the book of Genesis in this series, Eve, just that, that'll be an opportunity for you in your personal Bible study if you want to learn about Eve. We're focusing on four other women in the series, kind of highlighted in red here on the, on the graphic. Um, Sarah, that's today, and then Rebecca, and Dinah, and Hagar. And they all are part of this family tree. Now, you might have noticed that the series is subtitled Hearing the Voices of People Long Silenced. That language is very intentional, and I want to explain to you why. Those of you in the sanctuary, let me invite you to grab a hymnal. Pick up one of the red hymnals and open to page 37. Not hymn number 37, but page 37, right in the beginning of the hymnal. You'll see at the top of the page something called a brief statement of faith. 
That was an affirmation that was developed after the northern and southern branches of the church reunited in 1983, and the statement was affirmed in 1991, the year actually that I was ordained as a pastor. So three times in this statement, there are explicit affirmations about the equality of men and women. One example, here on the screen, in the middle of page 38, the next page, we read about how the Spirit of God calls women and men to all ministries of the church. And then towards the bottom of page 38, there's another section um, that talks more generally about the Spirit. And it says, the Spirit gives us courage to hear the voices of people long silenced. I've always appreciated that phrase, the intention of hearing voices of people long silenced, hearing the voices of people that we don't get to hear from. We see an example of this, I think, in the life of Jesus, who made a habit of reaching out to the last and the least and the lost, and it seems like it's worthy for us to follow. I've also appreciated the gender inclusivity of the brief statement of faith, the fact that three times it's very explicit about women and men, including a reference to Sarah as well as Abraham. However, the statement was written 31 years ago. If it was written today, whatever committee was working on it, I think would certainly consider phrasing things a little bit differently beyond the male-female binary language that we have. We continue to learn about human nature, human identity, about LGBTQIA people, and certainly that group fits within the dynamic of people long silenced. So for now, we have the statement from 31 years ago with inclusive language for men and women and with the invitation to keep listening to the voices of people long silenced. Our focus this month is on the women of Genesis. So with all that background, long prelude, we're going to turn to the text with Sarah. She appears in Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 23. She doesn't say much. In fact, in our reading today from chapter 12, not a peep, not a word from Sarah. Other chapters, she has a little bit to say. She's principally portrayed as a wife of Abraham and a mother of Isaac. And on September 25th, you'll hear about her complicated relationship with her servant, Hagar. Abraham and Sarah, first known as Abram and Sarai, were called by God to go to a new place to be blessed by God, to be a blessing to others. Blessed to be a blessing, right? That's our memory verse for today. It's a wonderful way to capture the life of faith. We're blessed to be a blessing to others. But I find it problematic that Sarah is essentially an afterthought in this text about the two of them becoming, um, you know, parents of many generations. So, our reading comes from Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to read it in two parts. The first part begins here, in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarah and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land 
of Canaan. So that's the scripture reading. Is anybody here familiar with the Father Abraham song? Any veterans of church school camp, right? It's a, it's a catchy little ditty, a lot of hands going up, but if you, if you didn't know it, let's see. Oh, I thought I slipped it in here. I guess not. Um, I'm not going to sing it for you because I'm merciful. My voice isn't good. But the words, you might know it. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right? And you sort of dance around in body parts, talk about your arms and your legs and stuff. It's a catchy tune, but there's a little problem with the song, I think. Yes, Abraham had lots of children, as many as the stars in the sky, like the Bible says, but he wouldn't have gotten too far without Sarah. Why don't we have Sarah in the song? And actually, their children, Abraham's children, um, you know, Jews and Muslims and Christians call Abraham as an ancestor. But we only sing about Abraham in this song, in the original version of the song. There are some contemporary versions that include Sarah, thank goodness, but he wouldn't have gotten very far, the father of many nations, about Sarah and Hagar. And then, there, you know, why are we singing just about his sons? You know, sons, daughters, I know language has evolved over the time, so that's the way it goes. Um, I also find it problematic in our reading that God speaks only to Abraham. You know, it would be like two people are married and one spouse decides, we're going to move. And they go and they buy a house and then they come home and tell the other house, we're moving. You know, doesn't the other spouse have some say in that? Sarah's essentially treated like property or a, like a meeting observer with no voice and no vote. Well, unfortunately, it gets a little worse in the remainder of chapter 12 in terms of the way Sarah is treated. The reading continues. Oh, and by the way, when I say something like, listen for God's word... It doesn't mean you're simply to soak up the words as the inherent, literal, um, never-to-be-questioned, unchangeable word of God. What it does mean, I think, is that we listen for how God speaks to us through these words that were inspired by God and written by humans. So in that spirit, listen for what God is saying to us in this scripture reading. Now, there was a famine in the land. Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know well that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the officials of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt, with, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh, call, Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and be gone. And Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they set him on his way with his wife and all that he had. Fascinating and I find disturbing biblical narrative, right? 
Sarah was essentially understood to be Abram's property, passed off to Pharaoh as some sort of like welcome gift when he arrived in this strange land. And while we want to and should be respectful and humble with other cultures, with their norms and, and habits and traditions that we don't understand, we also have to be aware of injustice and cruelty. Sarah has no voice in this narrative, nothing written in the text. She has no say whatsoever. And for much of Christian history, the treatment of Sarah and the silence of Sarah was just accepted as, well, that's the way it goes. And sometimes that was held up as normative, that women should be silent and treated like property. But let's be clear. It's not okay to treat women or anyone like property. It's not okay to commodify another human being. It's not okay to silence the voice of women or any human being. Thankfully, God is gracious and merciful and patient and forgiving with us. And thankfully, slowly, steadily, we're learning. We're learning. We're growing. In 1956, two years after this congregation was founded, the National Presbyterian Church, for the first time ever, ordained a woman as a pastor. And since that time, and eld eld women elders had been ordained before that, since that time, both this congregation and the National Church have been blessed by thousands of women pastors, elders, people in positions of leadership. And I really feel like the Presbyterian Church does value men and women in all positions of leadership. Grateful for that. And just this summer, there was an interesting development in response to current events. A Presbyterian leader reminded the church that Jesus trusted women. Looking at the Gospels, right? This meme has circulated widely. I think there's even t-shirts with it on um, in various forms. I'm not going to read each of these verses that are mentioned on here, but I do want to highlight one of them from Luke chapter 8 that goes like this. Jesus went on proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12, the 12 male disciples, were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa. Notice the woman is identified in terms of the man that she's attached to. And Susanna, and many others, who ministered to them out of their own resources. I've often wondered about Joanna and Susanna in this little verse here. We don't hear anything about Susanna in the rest of the scripture and just hear a little bit about Joanna. Wouldn't it be fascinating if tomorrow biblical archaeologists somewhere dug up a scroll that had some information about Joanna and Susanna and had their stories and had their words? Wouldn't that be interesting? Well, the, the message on the screen Let's go back here. Jesus trusted women. Be like Jesus. It's good inspiration for us. Jesus was more inclusive and inviting than the religious authorities of his day, while also forgiving people and challenging people and comforting people. Jesus was faithful to the path of God, and it's good encouragement for us to be like Jesus. And as Genesis reminds Abram and Sarah, 
We should remember, I think, that we're blessed to be a blessing to all people. The good news of the gospel, short and sweet, is that God loves us and God loves everyone. Everyone. And the call of God for us is to love everyone. Which means we should probably listen to everyone as well. Let us pray. Loving God, thank you for the blessings of life, the blessings of this day, the opportunity to be your people. Continue to teach us your ways and show us your paths. Open our ears, open our hearts. Help us to really listen and learn from one another and grow together so that we can make this world a better place. May your kingdom come and your will be done. Amen. Offering is an act of worship. It's an act of worship that we have as part of our service every Sunday. And part of that offering involves, as you feel called, to offer financial gifts to support the ministry of this church and the church universal. There's a lectern in the back with a slot in it where you can do that. You can make an offering online as well. But offering is not just about money. Offering is how we offer ourselves to serve God's purposes. And so maybe this week, maybe the way we offer ourselves is by being really good listeners. Maybe it's by listening to people that we don't agree with. Maybe it's by reading articles about other political points of view. Maybe it's about listening to women or to men or to whoever comes across your path with open ears, trusting that God is present in all of us and seeking to be a blessing to everyone.